Patrick Miller is a tenured chorister at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. He's a tenor with a voice like a dark, malty ale. He spent 15 years singing as a soloist for operas all over the country, from Seattle to Boston and everywhere in between. He also loves Jesus, and the road to the Met tested his faith in profound ways. This is the All Things New Podcast, and I'm your host, Trevor Sides. In this episode, Patrick shares a story, how he got into singing, how he pursued and doubted God's call in his life, and why an art form like opera is good for our souls. Let's talk about your family. All right. So you grew up in Minneapolis. What was what was family life like? Um, I would say I had a great family upbringing. Um, youngest of three. Um, my brother is six years older. My sister is three years older than I am. Um, and I, I think probably like a lot of youngest, uh, I was kind of the baby in many ways of the family. Um, I, I was probably a little bit spoiled. Um, but, but I think the, the one thing about and my wife is an only child and I think we have similar, um, <laughs> and she's also a performer. So, uh, there is this, we joke about it in the business cause, cause it's very common for, uh, singers, um, and performers to be youngest and onlys. Um, that really? you, that's, that's really you, a thing. Uh, yeah. Oh. Huh. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, you, because you're the youngest, you, be, you can become the center of attention, <laughs> um, and, and you get used to it <laughs> and then you yeah. think, Hey, so maybe somebody will pay me to be the center of attention, <laughs> <laughs> which, which has dreams downfall. Dreams obviously. do come true. What do you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Were you raised in a Christian home? I was. Yeah. Um, my parents um my dad was actually my parents are both from wyoming my dad met my mom in high school they're king and queen of the prom and uh they got married right after they graduated from high school now when my mom met my dad he was not a christian and he asked her out and she said not unless you go to church with me first (laughs) and uh and so he went to church with her and long story short, he got saved at uh, a Billy Graham conference, Billy Graham crusade. No way. And, um, and so that changed the course of his life in a, mm. in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was going to the university of Wyoming on a wrestling scholarship and he felt called to the ministry and left left school and left his scholarship and moved to Minneapolis to go to what at the time was Northwestern Bible College. And actually, Billy Graham was the president of the college at the time, and they had a seminary. And so he started seminary there. And the year before he graduated from seminary, they closed the seminary. Oh, my goodness. And he and he sort of felt like, well, what does this mean? What's the next step? Yeah. And uh, And so he ended up transferring to the University of Minnesota, um, getting a PhD in speech communications and higher education. 
Um, his dissertation was an analysis of of secular uh, speeches against uh, sermons, um, and uh, and he worked he he worked at Westmont College for a while. He was in in um, Christian education, and then he ended up back at the University of Minnesota um, as dean there for thirty some years. Um, my mom taught at uh, high, in high school and in college. Christian college, um, theater, acting and drama and directing. Um, so they, and then after my dad retired from the university of Minnesota, he, um, he spent, I think 10 years as the vice president of Northwestern college, the school that he first went to, to get his, um, to go to seminary. Right. So it came full circle and he he was vice president there for 10 years and, um, and then retired again <laughs> and is, is now retired for good. So you were, you were primed for, uh, for the, for, for opera basically growing up. If you're, you're, I, did you get a lot of that from your mom that I'm assuming given her background <laughs> and what she was teaching? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was a, when I, when I was in high school, I was probably a pretty typical high school boy. Um, my parents, uh, we went, we went to London for three weeks cause my dad was as part of his job was going and visiting several of the, um, summer programs for the university of Minnesota. Um, one was in Stratford upon Avon, which is where the Shakespeare mm-hmm. kind of yep. the hub of the Shakespeare scene is. Yep. Um, and then we, I think we went to Edinburgh, Scotland, where we visited a factory and then we went to Wales to visit a, um, a Norman cat, like a dig of a Norman castle. Okay. So kind of visit architecture, business and the arts. Um, and, uh, and while we were there, you know, I just, they took, they dragged me to all these Broadway, these musicals uh-huh. and theater. And I just like, I couldn't be bothered. I just thought it was the <laughs> least cool thing I could imagine. What were you, what um, were you into at that time in your life? What was, what made you go? What made me go? Yeah, at that time in, of your life. What, what, what well, my parents take? made me go because I was in high school. <laughs> no, right. What was your thing but, at the time, though? What were you into at the time? Oh, oh what made me go? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, now I get it. I was into <laughs> sports. I was, a, I was a skier. Okay. Um, and actually, um, yeah, so I, I ski. I was a slalom racer. Um, I just, I got a late start, but a lot of my friends, um, you know, were, working toward the U S ski team. And actually two or three people that I was on the, on my team with were, uh, Olympians. Lindsay Vaughn was on my team. No way. Um, but she was like five years old. <laughs> so I was quite a bit older, but I, it was right at the very beginning before she moved to Colorado where, That's right. where I guess the real skiers live. Right. That's right. That's right. Hashtag. <laughs> I don't know what the hashtag is, but yeah, yeah it's where they live. We're a big no, deal. The, the, the hill that I skied on was, I mean, it was just a bump in right. the middle of the Midwest, right. but we did have, we did have, uh, we've had quite a few, you know, but. So you anyway. were, you were right there with the Lindsey Vaughn and then. I was right there with the Lindsey Vaughn and as then, she and snow plowed through the course <laughs> winning, winning first place. Cause there were three other kids her age. Um, that's hilarious. but that, but that's how you get there. That right. and, a and a dad who, um, 
won't quit. And yeah, you know, they, they, they moved their whole, if you know the story, they moved their whole family out of Minnesota and moved to Colorado, sold yeah. their house yeah. and lived in a condo. And, you know, it, it was really rough on the whole family. Everybody sacrificed for that career and that. It's crazy. That life that she had, you know, that's, that's, yeah, you gotta, you gotta sacrifice a lot to get to that level. Absolutely. That's, that's true in the opera world as well. Yeah. I, well, well I, I, I think we, it'd be good to talk about that in a little bit. So you, you sure. on this trip with your family to, uh, to yeah. the United Kingdom and it's still just like, I could care less. Right. But, but the, the one thing that really, um, got me that I was surprised about was we visit all these castles and, you know, fortresses and things like that. Yeah. And for some reason, it just like really something clicked in me. I just was like, wow, this is, this is incredible, this history. And, um, and it was after that, that I really developed an, an interest in early music. So Renaissance mm. music and things like that. Um, and I was singing in the choir in high school. So I, I was, my, my mom actually encouraged me to do that. Um, when I was in, when eighth grade and I was, you know, she got some letter from the choir director in high school and she said, you know, she said, I think you should audition for the choir. I said, well, I, I've never done that before. I don't, I don't know if what, you know, what that'd be like. And she said, well, you know, I've heard you sing and I, I think you have a voice and I think you'd be really good. And she said, when I was in high school, I sang and, and I, you know, got in these little small ensembles and, mm. um, you know, I, I think you could do it. Well, what I found out later was that she had heard me, um, when I was in, probably in elementary school, I'd come home after school and I'd, I'd go into my room and lock the door. And I had one of these old Panasonic recorders, um, you know, that it was black and it had like a pull out handle on the front yeah. and had the, you'd like have to push the orange record button and the play button at the same time to record it. Yeah. And I'd put a cassette in there and, and I would, I remember, you know, I'd spend hours in there um, doing different voices and like making up commercials and making up stories and, um, and singing songs and making up jingles and things like that. And she heard that. And I guess that kind of was one thing that made her think, you know, maybe, maybe you're good at this. So. Do you, um, do you remember any of those jingles or commercials you made up? <laughs> no, oh, no, actually probably in, in college I came home cause I, I wanted to find one and I had a, I'd found a tape um, and it, and I had about 10 seconds of it. And then I recorded over on something else. So I heard about oh. 10 seconds of it. It was, <laughs> it was the one, the one that I remember was, it was a, I was, I was playing all the voices of a family and the whole family was, I don't know if they were having an argument or, you know, they were all talking. So I was doing the little kid voice up high and I was doing the dad voice down low and I was doing the mom voice and the sister voice. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I really can't remember what the con what the content of it was. Um, I just remember that, that I would go into my room and do that. And I remember th this family that I had, you know, created and mm. recorded um and, and it's you know uh, a lot of people say if you're a singer you got to enjoy the sound of your own voice <laughs> yes and uh yeah I, and i i think i, I could, think at first i think at first i was fascinated by the fact that when i that when i 
heard it was spoken to a recording and listened back, it didn't sound like me. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I think a lot, you, you, once you hear your own voice for the first time, it, it's kind of shocking. Like, I don't really sound like that. And right. I'm sure when I listen to this podcast, I'm going to say the same thing. Like, man, do I really sound <laughs> like that? <laughs> I want my voice to sound much more, you know, whatever, but deeper because the way you hear it in your head is usually deeper and lower and right. more man, more manly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's true though. Even if you're not a singer, like even artists or writers, you have to like what you have to like what you create in order to, sure. to have any longevity in, in with it. Yeah. You have to yeah. like how you sound. Course, yeah. The, of course that's uh that, that was the challenge for me. I mean, maybe we're getting into this too soon, but that was a challenge for me in my career was this balance between uh, loving what you do and <clears throat> being confident without being cocky. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you really do, you do have to love what you do and you have to appreciate the skill that you do it with, but you can't, you can't go too far with that. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if, if you don't get, if you get out on stage with 3000 people in the audience, they smell fear. Oh yeah. And they, and they, and they respect. And you know, if a, I was just talking to someone last night after a show, cause we were talking about, um, about how an audience, you know, if you go out and, and you, so let's say we're, we're doing an opera right now, we just closed this technically musically terribly difficult. It's a lot of changing meter. It's a lot of difficult um, rhythms and, and intervals. Um, and when you're always having to think about the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth, it takes you out of the story. It takes you out of the drama. Mm. Um, and it's often less fun. <laughs> and an audience can sense when a performer is enjoying and having fun with what they're doing. Mm. And if you're, if you're not having fun and confident and saying like, really like, look at me, listen to me, you want to hear this. An yeah. audience feels that an audience. It's, it's, it's something that, that sometimes you can't even describe or put your finger on. But when somebody comes and hears a show, they never heard opera before. And they say like, I thought that the lead, the woman who played the lead, it just sound, didn't sound like she was, you know, having a good time or it didn't sound like she was really very good mm. is what they often say. Mm. And oftentimes that's because she's not sure of her part or she's, she's just not having, she, she's not really hundred percent committed to it. Um, so, uh, so all I'm saying is that, um, that as an artist, you you have to you have to respect the thing it is that you do mm. um because you're always pushing to make yourself as great as you can be because if you don't someone else is going to get that job <laughs> <laughs> so how do you how do you walk the line between confidence and cockiness and between excellence and enjoying the art that you are making it's like being a a starting pitcher that's a, a way I describe being a soloist, an operatic soloist to a lot of people is, mm. um, you know, there are a lot of really great pitchers in the major leagues and any one of them has amazing talent. Yeah. But like sometimes, sometimes you get on a streak and you're fantastic, but sometimes you show up to the park and you just, you're not feeling it. Yeah. 
And that's the challenge. Like when you get to the ballpark and you're not feeling it, how do you grind it? How do you grind out a win? Right. <laughs> when I am excellent, I enjoy it. Mm. Partly because as as it goes with the um with the analogy to the baseball player, it's not always excellent. Like right. Right. I, you're, I know you're, how to, a, you're a fallible human being and something's going to be off from time to time. Exactly. And, and in the same way, like sometimes a pitcher it it's, or, or even a, a hitter, you know, you can be a great hitter, but sometimes if you're, if there's just a little hitch in your swing, yep. you go from, you know, hitting 320 to hitting 220 and everybody says, what's going on? This guy's a great player. Right. He's in a slump. Yep. You know, and, and w- Sometimes it's sometimes the things that can affect your singing are, are emotional things. Mm. You know, if, if you are, if you're dealing with a conductor who is, um, who's difficult to deal with, or is, isn't a, I guess a team player, (laughs) um, and, and doesn't, and, and isn't, you know, doesn't want to collaborate as much or, or a colleague that you're working with who, um, you know, isn't a good colleague. Most of the time they're good colleagues, but occasionally run into somebody who may be going through something in their life. Um, and it's making working with them challenging. Um, those kind of things can throw you off your game a little bit. Um, and uh, I, I would say, so as far as, you know, being excellent and enjoying when those, when those moments come where you feel like you're singing your best, you really savor them and you, you're thankful for them. Mm. Because, um, you know, the, the things, the things that keep me on the humble side of, of, uh, life as a performer is that is, is actually that the very thing that, you know, that it's, that I am fallible, that it's never perfect, that I'm always, that I'm always having to, to correct small things or trying to fix things. And so you know, I, I know that when I step out there that I'm walking a tightrope and I know that I could forget my words <laughs> and I know that I could be singing a love duet with the soprano. And when I inhale the air to take, to, to sing my next line, I inhale a mouthful of her wig <laughs> and I'm caught, you know, I mean, there, there, there's weird things, little has, things, or you get into a theater. Wait, has that, has that out. ever happened before? Oh yeah. Well, not a mouthful, but okay. you know, if I'm getting strands of hair in my mouth as I inhale before I sing, yeah. I'm having to cough them out before I sing, you know, <laughs> or, 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 or you, you know, you're, you're always working in a different theater in a different town. And mm-hmm. sometimes those theaters are really moldy and dusty mm-hmm. and, um, and that's not good for um, the old pipes. It's not good for the pipes. Um, you, I, I sang in, um, in Logan, Utah a few years back and when I first got there, it was rough because of the altitude. Yeah. And the air was dry. so dry. Yep. Um, but after about two weeks, I just loved it. I didn't want to leave. The, the, the air was just perfect. I loved singing at, at that altitude because it changes. It actually changes uh, how you sing high. You can sing high a little easier in thinner air. Um, no way. And so, you know. I know. Yeah. If you, it, if I, if I can get a half step or a whole step on top, you know, that's, that's just another money note. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. So it, yeah, no, it was a blast singing 
a singing at altitude. Um, so, and then of course, when you come back down to, uh, to sea level, you can sing even better. It, it, it's just like the athletes, you know, you go up there and you train. And then when you go back down to sea level, so you've got an easier. advantage. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't let, you know, if, if, but if you stay on sea level, then you're, and you're breathing New Jersey air, you know, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> go New Jersey air. Go New Jersey air. I spent a couple summers in New York city, uh, like mm-hmm. kind of mid college or I guess late college years. And mm-hmm. the funniest thing about New Jersey I saw there, I was at a Yankees game mm-hmm. and this guy was walking down the aisle and he had a t-shirt on. It said, Jersey girls ain't trash. Trash gets picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, so there we, you go. We had a few of those. There you we, go. We had a few of those Minnesota. I think New Jersey and New York have the same thing that Minnesota and Iowa did. Oh, you know, yeah. what's the different, what, what's, uh, yeah. What's the difference between, uh, a bag of trash and a, an Iowa farm girl <laughs> trash gets ta- trash gets taken out once a week. <laughs> you know, what, why, why are all the football fields in Iowa artificial turf? So the cheerleaders won't graze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we had all of those. Um, how did the Iowa farmer break his arm <laughs> raking leaves? He fell out of the tree. What's <laughs> what, why does, why does the Mississippi river flow South? I don't know. Cause Iowa sucks. Iowa sucks. Yeah. Yeah. That's What's like, the that's, best? that's like the Nebraska, you know, why does, why does, you know, why is it always windy in Wyoming? Well, it's cause Nebraska sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 What's the best thing to come out of Iowa? I 35 North. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Into Minnesota, of course. Right. right. Anyway. <laughs> so we digress. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that opera singers were allowed to live in New Jersey, like tenured metropolitan opera tenors. I didn't know they were like allowed. To <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's a, it's, there's a lot of us out here actually. Um, the one of the reasons why we chose New Jersey was because, um, it's just a, at least Teaneck where I live. Um, there is a large group of choristers at the Met who live here. And so we carpool in. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. So we share the cost of tolls and all that. So it's, uh, that makes it a little easier. Yeah. That's fun. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the, let's go back to the sort of the, the dawning of your appreciation for, um, for Renaissance music and Renaissance yeah. art. What uh, take me from just sort of share the story. Take me from that point kind of in, and that was in high school, correct? Mm-hmm. Where you started, mm-hmm. yeah. this light started to, to, to hit you and you're like, Oh, this is really interesting. So yeah. take me from that point to when, you started to realize, oh, I think this is going to be my career or, or where you, where you wanted it to be your, your vocation and wh- what you wanted to do with your life. Okay. Well, it's a bit of a circuitous route. Um, I, uh, as long as started, it ends up, as long as it ends up North of the Iowa border, we're okay. I preach it. <laughs> um, so, uh, it actually doesn't, but, oh, okay. but we'll get there. All right. Um, but, uh, well, I guess it is because that's where I am now. Correct. As, as at least, uh, lat- latitudinally speaking. Yeah. Um, so once I got into, I auditioned for the high school choir and got in and then I auditioned for the, every other choir that they had like small ensemble and got into those and was singing a lot and I really loved it actually, but I wasn't taking any voice lessons. So, um, and then when, when I went to London with my family, 
uh, I just, I became fascinated with, with Renaissance music and we sang a lot of it in the choir that I was in, in high school. And so when I went to college, I thought, well, I'm going to audition. I went to Wheaton college in in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And so when I auditioned for the choir, I found that even though I was a, I was pre-med sociology major, I found that I didn't want to hang out with sociology majors or psych majors. I want to hang out with music majors. <laughs> I mean, all my friends were music majors. What is going on here? Mm. They're, they're just, they were just kind of like my people. Can't really describe it. Mm. Um, and so I started like singing in every little choir group and, um, and decided I want to be a music minor, which I think scared my parents a little bit. Cause like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought he was going to be a professor. um there's maybe a little too much performing going on right because if you remember as i told you earlier um my parents were both um in theater well my my i didn't tell you that my dad was but my mom was uh and my dad actually did a lot of theater and directing that's how my mom and dad met as he was directing student directing something and she was in it um and uh and so that was kind of in their blood and they knew mm-hmm. <clears throat> what it meant to be in the theater and they knew kind of the job prospects of that. And yeah. when you're paying, when you're paying tuition to send your kid to a private school and they say, I want to be probably a music major, art major, or philosophy major, the parents cringe and like, <laughs> uh, can you just go to someplace else that's not so expensive? But um, anyway, so but I was not a music major. I was a psych. I ended up being a psych major and a music minor. Okay. But, um, but I, as I said, I spent so much time with, um, with musicians. Um, and, uh, and I just, I, I, I didn't realize it at the time that that was my calling. my master's in um in counseling psych and before i started my doctorate i spent a summer in eugene oregon at a at a music festival where i had i sort of had an experience where i decided i want to get a phd in counseling psychology and i wanted to become a singer i had already bought a house (laughs) i'd already committed to an assistantship a five-year uh phd program in counseling psychology and I called my parents and I said, I think I want to become a singer. I don't want to get my doctorate. <laughs> Two professors were, yeah. you know, my dad said, I mean, we had a long phone conversation about it. And he said, you know, I bet you, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, he has, he's, he has a PhD and, um, and they were big in believing in education. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a great career. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point he said, you know, you're going to wait tables for the rest of your life. Mm. And I paused and I said, if I have to wait tables to do what I love, then that's what I'm going to do. Wow. 
and when he said, and when I said that, I think, you know, he was pushing me because he said he wanted me to know, like, this isn't going to be easy. This is not like it's been, you know, it's not, it's not like academia can be where if you put in the time and you do the papers, results results will come. Um, this is completely based on performance and you show up and you do it. Um, and then you have to do it again and again and again and again. Um, but once he, I think once he saw that I was committed to it, they were, they were behind me hundred percent. So you sold your house. I, (laughs) I sold, I I lived in my house for eight months (laughs) and sold it and made a $900 profit. I, I, I did not, I did not go broke on that deal. Fortunately. Boom. It's all you need, man. So, so I ended up going to university of Minnesota, get my master's degree there. Um, and then my first, after you finish a master's degree, um, and, and the degree was in singers, the, the, the degree was in, um, uh, in, in vocal performance. Okay. And you, you try to get apprenticeships. So, um, summer opera festivals will hire 30, um, um, you know, graduate s- student singers to fill out their chorus and, and understudy small roles or larger roles. Um, <clears throat> and that first summer in Des Moines, Iowa, um, is where I met my wife. We were actually cast in a, in a scene of an opera together, um, where she dies in my arms. <laughs> so the, me- the metaphor, of- the metaphor is just, a, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. And you were in Iowa. <clears throat> and I was in Iowa. She was not, she's not from Iowa though. Oh. She's Russian actually. Okay. Oh, she's Russian. Um, oh mm-hmm. yeah. 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 From St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so we met there. Um, and we, that was in 2001, I think. And we were married in 2007 <clears throat> and I'd started working probably 2000 five, um, and started traveling around a lot. Um, we, the, the one thing that I think really helped our relationship was that, um, that her English was good, but it wasn't great. Um, and so we had a lot of misunderstandings early on, um, under misunderstanding each other where I'd tell a joke with my dry Minnesota humor (laughs) and she would take me literally. Right. And be very upset with me because I said something that was offensive to her, but not knowing that I, it was, you know, it, it was, uh, it was a joke. So we, we worked early on through a lot of misunderstandings, communication. Yeah. And, um, I think because of that, it really helped when I went on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she went on the road too, cause she's, she's also, she's a fantastic soprano. So you guys um, were, you were married in both performing and both traveling. Yes. Wow. So what was the condition of your, of your faith and your marriage in the middle of, of those years of traveling? Well, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's an isolating, you're really isolated. Mm. You can be spiritually isolated. Um, certainly emotionally isolated. Um, the challenges of that job, you know, a lot of, a lot of marriages bite the dust. We almost never traveled at the same time. Oh when, you know, 
when one of us was at home, the other one was traveling. We tried because that way <clears throat> I could go see her shows and she could come see mine. Um, well, that's interesting. I, it's, it's, you know, it would have been better if our schedules were completely full all the time as far as money goes. But, um, as far as our relationship goes, I think it was, that, that was a calculated decision on our part. Um, because, you know, if you're both working all the time, it's, it, it's really straining on the, on the relationship. Yeah. Um, because, you know, she, she'll be, a lot of people say, you know, you shouldn't marry a, you shouldn't marry another singer. Singer shouldn't marry another singer um, because of the schedule issue. Yeah. And because also just what I said before about um, always need to be the center of attention. <laughs> um, because if you have two people like that in a relationship, um, bad things happen. What? Really? No way. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think, I think both of us were, I don't know. We're grounded enough. And I think we, we tried to look ahead enough, you know, to say this being on the road all the time. And, you know, when, when she would be done with a rehearsal, she could call me and say, Hey, this is what work is like right now. It's really hard because X, Y, and Z. And I, and I have the, I have the emotional space. Yeah to be able to talk with her, pray with her, you know, help her through a difficult time at work. But if, you know, it's really hard when you're both having these experiences and you call each other and you, you're both having things you need to talk through yeah, and then you don't have enough time and you don't want to spend two hours on the phone because you're going to shred your voice for rehearsal the next day. Um, so you, you have to do that. Um, and along the way, I think God put people in our lives um, often in, in performance situations or, you know, at gigs, you know, very often you're the only Christian there. Um, and, you know, you, you're, like I said, maybe you're in, you're in Indianapolis and I've never been to Indianapolis. I don't know anybody in Indianapolis mm. and neither do the soprano, the conductor, the bass, and, you know, one of the other singers. Yeah. So there are five of you, you're working together all day, all night, and you have no play, nobody to hang out with. So when it's time for dinner break, everybody goes out to dinner together. The next morning, everybody hangs out together, mm. you know, it, so you end up having this sort of, um, add water and stir, um, relationships, <laughs> which, which if you're on the road and you're lonely can be very bad. Yeah. You know, and like I said, there's, there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, bad things can happen. Um, particularly to people who are kind of new to the business and they don't realize, you know, this is not, <laughs> The, the the job is not the place to do that. Um, but it's, but it's hard because you get, you're on the road a lot. Right. You are isolated. If you're, if you're not working hard to stay um, connected to your spouse and you're not in the word mm. um, that you're, it's, it's really easy for the world around you to, um, 
to feel like your reality. Mm. Um, I, I think that's, that's true even now, you know, I, if you don't have a lot of Christians yeah. around you to remind you, Hey, that this is not our world. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's really easy to quickly, um, get sucked into being a person that God doesn't want you to be mm. and you don't want to be. Yeah. I'm sure the dynamics of it are heightened to, uh, you know, are, are heightened quite a bit in, in the environment you're describing, but really also what you're describing is almost just what well, you could be a full-time traveling opera singer. You could be a, uh, a stay at home mom, or you could be the dad that has a 10 minute commute every day. And yep. th- what you just said, am I, am I with people who are going to remind me of what story I'm living in? Am I, am mm-hmm. I in the word? Mm-hmm. And the exact same set of problems and temptations are going to be there. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. I, I would say the only thing that makes it different is that the person that you're working with, you might have a love scene with where you're kissing them. Yeah. That might be a little different. Yeah, that, that's generally, yeah. I mean, like we, we joke about this all the time at the Met because, you know, with all of the heightened uh, awareness of HR situations, let's say. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm doing a show right now where, where we wear bodysuits that are very anatomically accurate. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, like there, there are things that we're not doing anything ridiculous, but you know, there are things that you're asked to do as a performer to yeah. tell a story yeah. that you're not going to be asked to do in a business environment. Right. Oh yes. Um, but, but you, you're a hundred percent correct. So can, can we pause for a minute? I want to, yeah. maybe two questions then. Um, maybe, I, I think I want to ask it this way. How has, how have you and your wife and how has your common faith helped you make decisions about what you're comfortable with and what the other one's mm-hmm. okay with? Yeah. And, then I, and then I also want to ask the inverse of it. And, and that is, what has your faith cost you? on this road to becoming a full-time professional tenured tenor at the Metropolitan Mm. Opera? What is it, Mm -hmm. what does it cost you? As far as how we decide, um, what kind of, what line we cross. I I remember when I was in grad school, I, I thought about it a lot. I worried about it a lot. I was constantly worried that I was going to be asked to do something that I was really uncomfortable with, mm. you know, something physically, maybe, you know, like it's, it's not unusual as the tenor in the opera that you're going to fall in love with the person. I mean, the character that you're playing right. falls right. in love with a woman on stage. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you kind of, that, that's par for the course. You kind of have to be comfortable with that. And yeah. if that means kissing someone on stage, you know, we, we are both, very comfortable with that. Um, to some people it's weird. Um, I, it's just, yeah, let's get Kurt just, Cameron on the other line. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're uncomfortable with that, it's going to be a tough job. Oh, sure. Um, and, and I'm, and we were both comfortable with it. Um, I've been to many shows where I've seen her kiss guys on stage. She's been to shows where she's, um, but you know, these, these kisses are not, 
you know, when you, when you see two actors in a film or a television show do it, mm -hmm. you, there's a, particularly with HD, you can't hide a lot. So if, if they are not emotionally invested in that, in that love scene, um, you're going to see it right away. When you're on stage and the nearest audience member is across the orchestra pit, maybe 30 feet away, um, you don't, there's no emotional investment. I mean, you, you're emotionally invested in the music, right. you're emotionally invested in the story, but you have no emotional investment in the person you're singing with uh, as far as something, anything beyond. Because you, know, you don't, like you said, you don't have to sell it. In not in the it, same way you you would you would on screen. Right. I mean, when the camera's what, right there and it's being shot in four K and whatever. Exactly. And, and what's happening? You know, my wife did a Tosca um, with a company that shall remain nameless, um, and it was a fantastic experience. But the tenor that she was working with, where she would have to, there were two scenes where, you know, he says she says goodbye to him and she kisses him. Often. Be right before rehearsal, he would come from the gym and he wouldn't shower <laughs> and he would be so disgusting. And she would, she would call me and she'd say, he didn't take a shower before he came back from the gym. And, you know, so, and, and when you, when you, when you're doing a 25 minute uh, duet with somebody and you kiss them at the end, <laughs> the both of you, the both of you are so, um, I mean, you just, you have not just taken a mint in your mouth. You haven't brushed your teeth. It's not a, it's, it's a, by no means, um, a stimulating experience in that way at all. <laughs> I mean, the two of the two of you by the end of the say it's butterfly, by the end of the duet, all you can think about is how am I going to get this last note out without cracking? Right. Or, yeah, you know, right. it's like the last thing in your mind is, you know, does this girl think I'm cute before I kiss her? You know, it's like, it's just, it's, it's two people who do this for a living. Right. And right now my main task is making sure that I don't suck. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. And, and so I, as far as, you know, as far as anything beyond that, um, <clears throat> I was, I was offered a, a role in an opera once. Um, where, you know, the, the director who I knew, you know, he's like, this is really exciting. It's a new piece. Um, you know, it's going to be good exposure for you. Um, so he told, I said, okay, well, tell me about it. He said, well, it's a, it's a two person show. And he described the whole thing. I was like, oh, it's really interesting. And then, and then as he's describing it, I'm, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. I'm like, okay, this may not be for me. Mm. He gets to the climax of the piece and he says, well, you know, at the end of the piece, you know, your, your love has been scorned and you strip down naked and you walk into the ocean and, and commit suicide. Um, I was like, so when you say strip down naked, <laughs> what do you mean exactly by that? He said, oh, you'll, you'll, you know, completely disrobe. And you'll walk back upstage into what looks like waves. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's not really for me. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, I, I don't, and I don't know if that was a faith issue or if yeah. that's just a me issue, but. Right. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I have, I, 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 it wasn't something I was at the least bit interested in it. And it may have been yeah. a, a career starter because a lot of times when you do a show like that, that's very edgy. Mm. A lot of people notice it. Yeah. Because you're pushing the envelope. And when you do something like that, people in the industry notice because they say, this guy, this guy's willing right. to go that far for his art. Right. He's a real artist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's a real yeah. artist and he is, um, he doesn't have hangups because when, when someone finds out I'm a Christian, I usually don't tell them partly mm. because the first thing they do is pull away and they've already made decisions about who I am and that I may not love them, that I may not, you know, yeah. They've, yeah. Pe- yeah. They've come I, I want to show they, Yeah. They've got all these preconceived notions and, and, and determinations. They, yeah. They think they're going to spend the next four weeks with Ned Flanders. <laughs> And I want to show them that a Christian can be, you know, not Ned Flanders. I don't know as, as cool as I could be, which is not that cool, but, um, you know, (laughs) like that, that a Christian can be, cause I've met people when they say they found out a Christian, they're kind of surprised and like, Mm. really? Um, and hopefully not because I wasn't acting like a Christian, but I, I think a lot of times it's, I wasn't acting like they were expecting a Christian to act because right. they'd never really met one. Right. Except when they were in high school and, you know, their parents made them go to church right. and then they went to college and they freed themselves from all those, all that bondage of spiritual whatever. And, you know, <clears throat> and, and then they just isolate themselves with their peer group. Yeah. And they build this, image of what a Christian is based on what the media is telling them. Right. I E Ned Flanders. I mean, I, I don't have a lot positive to say about how Christians are represented in film and television. I worked several years in film and television before I got this job at the Met. Um, but you know, I, I think that sometimes people's image of a Christian is, is just built on, stereotypes yeah. that they've, that they've seen yep. um, in, in day-to-day life and not from actual people. And there's, and I'm not saying there aren't Christians that they've met that have given them bad impressions. Cause I'm sure there have been many. Yeah. We, we are a flawed group of people. Right. Um, right. And, and that happens too. But um, I, I, I don't want to be one of those people because I am flawed and I, I, and when I start out, maybe when I start out by telling them I'm a Christian, I'm then either held held to such a high standard that I can't be myself, mm. or I'm not a. They'll never see me because they're looking for someone else. Especially when you were traveling, you were kind of the the token believer in your group. How did that affect the way you you talked about your faith, or even just acted around your coworkers. When I was traveling, there were, there are many, you know, situations where everybody got, want to go to a bar, or go yeah. to a strip club after a show. And I, it just wasn't, you know, I, I couldn't connect with that group in that way, obviously. Yeah. Um, it, in the, in the chorus, there are 80 
80 members of the full-time chorus at the Met. And there are a few Christians in the group and, you know, we connect and I've had, I've had, you know, a couple, there are a couple of guys there that, that are really, um, you know, seeking after, seeking after God. And, Mm. um, and it's, it's fantastic to have just a few rocks around to, to grab onto and say, Hey, I'm having a rough day. Or can you pray for me about this? A buddy of mine, you know, pray for my son or my daughter who's going through something. And it's, it just, it's such a, it's so refreshing. Um, and that's one thing I love about this job is there aren't a lot of Christians there, but there are some. And, um, when you're on the road, very often you're the only one. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, approaching people about my faith, I, I really, I, I try my best, um, you know, to walk my line, um, to, to live the word. Um, it's hard. It's hard every day because we're under, it's, it's a very, it's a really stressful job. You know, I'm right now I'm having seven shows a week, which is Monday through Friday. I have shows in the evening and then wow. two shows on Saturday. Wow. I'll leave the house at 9 a.m. and I'll get home at 11.45 or midnight. Um, that's crazy. That's Monday through Friday. And then Saturday I'll leave at like 11 or 11.30 in the morning and get home at midnight or 12.30. I got home almost at one o'clock this last, last night. Um, and so um, there's, there's a lot of demands on the job and it's easy to get um, – it's easy to get to fall into complaining and mm, yeah. you know a lot of the things that I think everybody does when you get you complain about your boss, you complain about the hours, you yeah. complain you complain that now there are um, you know, one there's one less person to do the same amount of work and everybody's expecting you to be just as good as you would be were before. Mm. So we deal with a lot of that and it's it's really easy to to um to get into that. And I, and I know that, you know, as you said, it can happen in any job. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes the, the oil that, that lubricates relationships at work is things like complaining or gossiping about other people at your job. Um, and <clears throat> I find that to be one of the biggest challenges for me, frankly, mm-hmm. um, because, because it's you know it it's all it's always easy to to find a common link with another person through finding something negative about some someone or something else yeah, totally, you know totally. like oh we have something in common now we both dislike that person right. <laughs> or we're both irritated by how many hours you have to work today <laughs> um yeah it's some for some reason it sometimes you gravitate toward that instead of you know trying to find positive things or trying to uplift people. Um, and so that's, that's why having a few Christians around and, and they're really, there are some really great people. There are a lot of great people at the Met and in, in my job in the chorus who are not Christians who are just, you know, who are really positive people. I don't want to say they're not. Um, but, um, but having a lot of people I really care about there, but when you have, uh, there's, there's no, there's no substitute for that that eternal spiritual connection you have with somebody right. when you can look them in the eye, you know, right. like we're brothers in a way that I, no one else gets. Yeah. 
we we have we have a lord you know we have a we're citizens of a different place you know that's the best part So how, in fact, did you end up as a tenured chorister at the Metropolitan Opera? How did you get off the road and, and find a home? I think I started working at the Met in 2012. Um, I had been working <clears throat> for probably 10 years. I, I went through a, a young artist program with the Lyric Opera of Chicago for two years where I sang roles and auditioned and got my agent there. Um, and uh and that's where my career sort of took off and mm. i started singing around um and that's where like i think the first year after i was there i was i was on the road 10 months out of the year um <clears throat> and i i loved the work the 10 years that i spent as a soloist i i really enjoyed the work um the schedule was really difficult mm, it was really yeah. I, I'm a kind of a homebody. I like being at home um, and I like sleeping in my own bed. I don't like living out of a suitcase. I don't like eating at restaurants and coming home and having a hotel room. And after rehearsal, like, am I going to spend three hours watching house hunters or, <laughs> you know, or gold rush or whatever? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you start, you start seeing the time um, ticking away and you're not doing I'm doing the thing I want to do, which is sing and perform. But I see huge gaps in my life during every day where I'm kind of wasting it away. Mm. Um, and that was hard. It's, you know, being on the road is challenging also because, you know, if, if you're not singing well, if things are not going well, that's rough. Being on stage when you're not singing your best is not fun at all. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> and, it was, and it was really stressful. Um, <clears throat> so I'd been, my wife and I moved to New York after we got married, um, and, uh, got an apartment that the one that we just moved out of, we've been there 12 years. Um, and, uh, and I, I remember probably 2000, right after our daughter was born, um, I ran into an old friend 
um, actually, that I knew from Minnesota, um, who's also Christian. And I ran into her at Redeemer, actually. She and her mm-hmm. husband were there. And we talked a little bit. And she said, you know, have you ever thought about auditioning for the, the Metropolitan Opera Chorus? And I said, yeah. I said, but. And she was a full-time member of the course at the time. Okay. <clears throat> and in my head, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm a soloist. I'm not a chorister. Yeah. You know, I, I've been bred to, <laughs> to do this job and I love going out and do that, doing that. And if I can, I'm going to. <clears throat> and frankly, she said, I, I said, you know, it's the money's okay. She's like, no, do you know what they make? And I said, no. And she told me, I was like, I didn't realize it was that much. She's like, yeah. And you get a pension and you get dental insurance. And I was like, whoa, sign me up. That's right. Let's go. So, so the next day, because my my daughter had just been born, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be gone. You know, I'd already been on the road and, you know, being gone for five weeks when you have a two-year-old, it's not good. No, No. I want to be with, I want to be there with my kid every minute. Yeah. So. I auditioned and I, I got in something called the extra chorus. Um, the Met has 80 full-time choristers, roughly 40 women and 40 men. Okay. 20, 20 tenors, 20 basses, 20 sopranos, 20 altos. And they're paid um, a 12-month salary with pension and benefits and all that. <clears throat> and it's their job to learn anywhere between like 18 and 24 operas a year and perform them. Man. <clears throat> And in, in, you know, English, Italian, French, uh, French. How's your Russian, Russian, how's your Russian, by the way? My Russian's pretty decent. Um, I mean, certainly I can pronounce it pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Most singers can pronounce the languages pretty well, but, um, you know, Russian is not, uh, it's not a walk in the park. No, it's pretty hard to learn. Yeah. Um, my, actually my in-laws are living with us right now. And they speak basically mostly Russian. Yeah. Um, so my daughter's bilingual. That's um, amazing. And I love that. I would have loved to have that gift growing up. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I <clears throat> I studied it more when I was, when I met Veronica and we started dating because I wanted to impress her, of course. <laughs> does does your, does your wife still perform? Um, she, she does. She does more teaching now. She actually, her last gig... Last year she did, she'd done several gigs with New York City Ballet. Um, so she'll sing in the pit as a soloist oh, while wow. they're dancing okay. on stage. It's really cool. Um, and she she does perform from time to time, but she's got a studio. She teaches piano and she teaches voice. Um, fantastic. Loves that. She's a fantastic teacher. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so so when I heard about this Met job I auditioned and got into the extra chorus, which is when they have, when they need more than 80 people on stage, they call these people and say, Hey, would you, you know, be in Goethe Demerung or, um, the Troyan or whatever the show is tour and dot. So to keep up with our baseball metaphors, you're like in uh triple a, aren't you? You're like, you're in the farm league sort of. Yeah. When you're, when you're an extra chorister, you're, you, they might call you up from time to time. Right. Right. And that, yeah, that's actually a pretty good analogy. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So they, so they bring you in and, and you do a few shows, but they can't hire you full time unless someone retires and uh, no one quits the, almost no one quits the job. 
Yeah, I'm sure. Because it's a, as a impossible as a singer, to get it, right? Yeah. Fantastic job. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I got in, so, so I sang for five years as an extra chorister. So I'd do like three or four shows a year. And then I would also do solo work. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then three years ago, well, I guess now it'd be almost four years ago. I auditioned. Um, <clears throat> and I got a call. I auditioned in the middle of December, went home to Minneapolis and I got, oh, this is amazing. Actually. Um, it was new year's Eve day and we were going to fly out back to New York the next day. And Veronica and I were driving around Minneapolis and we pulled up to this pancake house, which we love to visit every time we go. And <clears throat> it's about quarter to five. And, um, I remember the time because the pancake house closed at five. So we got there right before pulled up and I'd been going through a lot of soul searching. Mm. Um, the past three years I had been doing like television and film stuff. I was doing small, like not even small roles. I mean, I was doing like uh, independent film, small roles and in independent film. I was doing extra work for big budget movies and things like that in New York so I wasn't by no means like, you know, breaking into the, into the business of film and television, but I was, I was, you know, doing okay and yeah. doing some small things, <clears throat> but I was mostly just hustling. Wasn't sure what I was going to do because I didn't, I didn't want to keep singing solo stuff necessarily. Were you afraid that you were <clears throat> going to be looking at a server job? Bus and take, I mean, what did the, did the whole, did your dad, <laughs> was your dad's line kind of in the back of your head about, you know, you're going to be. You know. Oh, well, you, you know, that, that did creep in, you know, like yeah. what, what am I going to do? I, I'll do whatever it takes to feed my family. Right. Right. You know, but I don't want to have to go back to school for two years. Right. Take and out you, a loan. And you were probably tired of being on the road. Tired of being on the road. So <clears throat> we pull into the pancake house and Veronica says, is there anything else you need? You know, before we, is there anything else you want? Like basically before we leave town? Yeah. I said, you know, I just want a job that I can be proud of, that is stable, that I can take care of my family. That's all I want. Mm. Kind of lifted up my hands, kind of like as a prayer. Like I had been praying that for so long, you know, just God open the open this path to me. You know, you've 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 put I I believe you've put me on this path. Mm. Is it should I should I keep doing this? Should I go into film and television? You know, am I going to, am I going to get a break there? Yeah. Where's the break going to happen? Where, where is the, where's the door opening? Mm. Basically. She, she just kind of laughed about it and we went and had our pancakes. And, uh, and then on the way home, we stopped at the grocery store and it was snowstorm. I, I get out of the car, go into the grocery store. I look at my phone and there was a missed call there's a missed call and I see it's from the Metropolitan Opera switchboard. And I thought, who's calling me from the Metropolitan Opera on New Year's, D a evening. place that I'm just barely working at on New Year's Eve. The call, by the way, was at 4:45 PM. <laughs> the same moment where I said, I just want some, a job I can be proud of. And I, my hands start shaking because I realized this is a call from the Metropolitan Opera for a job. <laughs> I listened to the recording. It's the 
it's the course master, the guy who does the hiring. He uh-huh. says, hi, Patrick, this is Donald Palumbo. Um, I'm just calling to talk to you for a minute. If you've got some time, please call me. I knew it was the call. I knew oh, it was the gosh. job. I ran back to the car and I, but I, but I was telling myself, you know, that's not, I, I don't want to get my hopes up. Maybe he's just calling because he wants to offer me a, another, you know, opera this year for uh, extra course or something. So I, t- I say, Veronica, Donald Palumbo just called me and she says, that's it. That's it. You got the job. You got the job. <laughs> and uh, so <clears throat> I called and left a message and he called me back. We drove back to my parents' house and he called me probably 10 minutes later. And um, he offered me the job and, um, and it was just like, at that moment, my life changed. Wow. It really did. Um, went from worry um, with questioning, with, you know, asking God, like, why, why did you put me on this path? Mm. You know, do I, am I the, am I the person who never quits because I'm supposed to be on this path and something good's going to happen? Or am I the person who never quits because they're too dumb to realize that they're in the wrong job? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, do you, do you stick it out and, and not give up because you're, because eventually it's going to work out because you don't know, you don't know God's timing. You don't know, you don't know what's around the next corner. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to be faithful and say, this is what I believe God's called me to do. And I have to, I have to stay steady on this path because if I'm patient, and I wait, I know God's going to answer this prayer. Mm. And, um, and he answered it and it was, it was, and there was much rejoicing as they say. In, as uh, they say in Monty Python. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, when I got that call, I came downstairs and I announced to my parents that I just got the job. It was, uh, there was a huge celebration. Um, it was, it was life changing. I mean, mm. going from scraping by to, living comfortably and, and knowing where my next paycheck's coming from. It was, uh, it was wonderful. I remember we got home and two weeks later we bought a couch and we were so excited about it <laughs> because we got it because we got a 12 month free financing. So I didn't have to pay for it until I start. Cause I got hired on new year's <laughs> Eve, but I wouldn't get my first paycheck until August 1st. Until when? August 1st is when the job started. Oh, wow. I see. Okay. <laughs> because oh, wow. they knew there was going to be an opening because right. the tenor was retiring and he announced that at the end of the year, but the season doesn't start until so. my contract didn't start till August 1st. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I described it to my pastor a little bit, like, cause it, I talked to him after I got the job, <clears throat> I said, you know, this, this Christian idea of already not yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. where, where we are, we are given a place in heaven. We're given the glory, you know, but we still have to live out our time on earth. Yeah. You know, like we want to be in paradise. We want to have that. We want to have that. Um, we don't want to be so far from God when we're in heaven. It's just, it's just going to be, you know, unadulterated, saturated with his presence. Mm. And we're promised that. But right now, 
we have to live here, knowing that that future is set before us. And this is, and it's, you know, it's a pale comparison. Yeah. But in a small way, this feeling of I've been accepted into something. I've been given this gift, but I can't have it yet. But this excitement of anticipating, knowing that, you know, it's coming, that that the promise has been made, that it's not fulfilled at this moment. But yet I can buy a couch on on credit (laughs) until... (laughs) So I can sit there and enjoy the couch, but um, I can't pay for it yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God's, God's credited us his righteousness and we mm-hmm. get, and we get to buy the couch. Exactly. Yeah. Love um, it. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's such a trivial thing, but um, you know, we, we were, we were just right on the edge, man, mm. financially. And it was so hard. And just knowing like, should we leave? Should I, should I go work for my sister in Eugene, Oregon? Should I do something completely different? We're going to leave New York. We do something, you know, our lives are going to turn upside down and we're going to walk away from the art that we love. Yeah. And, um, God gave us, God gave me this. It's a, you know, such a, it really is a hard job. There's so many things that are hard about it, but, um, all jobs are hard in their own way. You know, How do you see your job contributing to to the growth of the kingdom, and, or even just to um, to the common good? I feel like opera is a and is amazing art form. Very pe- few people understand it, yeah, and appreciate it because our our education system is such that people don't don't really they don't know, understand about how to make music. Mm. There was a time in our culture where people made things, people wrote things down, people created things. They didn't just consume things or use things. Mm -hmm. They, there was, there was a craft to things. I mean, you know, I I don't want to sound like a slow food movement person or something, but you know, you're talking to a bunch of people in Colorado. We invented the slow food movement. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Um, you know, it's like a a pair of shoes that are made for your feet. It's just different than a pair of Mm. shoes that you buy off the rack. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in the same way, something that you, something that's made by you is, and made by a person is just different than a lot of things that we consume. Now there's, everybody wants it fast and easy and um and there's there's just something about opera that's not fast or classical easy. art form that's yeah. not that way i mean yeah. this is not made quickly yeah um and certainly you know the benefit of what an audience member gets to by going to opera is not you know m- the fact that it's hard to make isn't doesn't draw people in yeah. For me yeah. and for the people I've talked to, the thing that draws them in is that, that, I mean, people, I've talked to people, I remember going to a, 
a men's retreat in Wisconsin when I was at when I was in Chicago as an apprentice. I went with mm-hmm. my church up to this retreat. There were these guys. It was like you know middle of the woods in Wisconsin. Guys were coming in by snowmobile <laughs> to the retreat. And I talked to this one guy. He found out I was an opera singer, probably a guy in his sixties. Uh-huh. He said, and you know, very blue collar type guy. Yeah. He's like, I remember I went to an opera once when I was, when I was 20 years ago or something. He said, I am I don't know what it was. So I found out later it was La Boheme. He said, I didn't know anything about opera. I didn't know the language it was in. He said, but when she started singing this song, I just started crying. He said, there's, there's an, you know, people, people who know nothing about the art form, they walk in and they, the composer writes the music that so tugs at your heartstrings. It's a very cathartic art form. Mm. And we have a lot of cathartic art forms right now in pop music, but a lot of them are really negative. Mm. A lot of them are, you know, people, it's cathartic for your anger. It's, it's, um, people connect with their own anger or people connect with their own anxiety, but, um, opera, the, the greatest operas, um, just they, even when, even something like Aida, which I've sung, even I've only been there three years, I've probably sung at least a hundred times. Um, there, there's the, the emotion in the music. So, um, it just satiates an emotional appetite that mm. I have. And that I think a lot of people have it's the stories are simple. The stories take you to a place emotionally with the character. You identify with that character and they take you to a place emotionally in the story. And then the great composers, when you're at that place emotionally in the story where the person is dying or the person is whatever is going on in that, in that character's story, they take the music and they squeeze that emotion out of you mm. in a way that's just so amazing mm. um, that that you don't get when you are literally watching a movie. And you know, I mean, you yeah. you get that because you're following a story, you're listening, but there's something about music that that unlocks something in us emotionally. Yeah. And, and would, would you say, believe, would, you, would you say that it, that it forms, would you say that it, that it's helped form your faith? Well, it's so a part of my life. Um, you know, all of these stories and yeah. the strange thing is, is that most of these are secular stories. Yeah. You know, we're doing a show called Mephistopheles right now, which is, which is a story about the sacred and the secular. Um, you know, it's the Faust story. Yep. Um, and we play angels in one scene. We play demons in another scene as choristers. Um, and, you know, I'm not out there singing worship songs. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm singing about, you know, I live in a fishing village and we're dancing because we're done with our day's work. Or I'm, we're singing about, um, you know, how great the king is or, uh, or how great this party is. Let's have some more wine. Yeah. You know, it, it's so rare. It's so rare. And there are rare moments in opera where, wh- whether it's, um, 
uh, Cavalry Rusticana, where we have this beautiful um, Ave Senor, this church scene, which is just unadulterated praise and worship in a very old style Italian way. Mm. But, but it's so soul satisfying to go out there and sing with the most amazing chorus in the world and a fantastic soloist and an unbelievable orchestra and stand out there and say, I'm getting paid to stand on the stage and praise God. (laughs) And I may be one of three people on the stage that's doing that. But, um, but when, when I have those moments where I can, I can just feel like, man, I'm praising God at work. Literally, literally, um, with 3000 people right there, it's, it just, it's indescribable how amazing it is to be able to open up my voice and sing with all these people, even if they're not all on the same page spiritually, I feel like I'm, I'm communicating with God on stage and, and it's so fulfilling and satisfying, but 95% of the time I'm, I'm singing, you know, about things that are in no way. Sure. 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 You yeah. know, spiritual, but, but, um, you know, the, uh, all God, all truth is God's truth. Yeah. And I think that the, the music that we make is beautiful. And I think, I think that in itself, you know, whatever you do in a word or deed due to the glory of God, glory of God, and whether you're a banker or an opera singer or a dentist, when you go in and you do your job or, or you're a custodian, you know, whatever it is you're doing, you do to the glory of God. And, um, you know, that's one thing that pushes me when I go to work and I am struggling to try to remember all the words to this chorus and I might not remember them all. And I might not even have to memor you know, know them all because there are 80 people on stage and people might not see that my mouth is not moving to the right words, but you know, the, uh, that, that's where, that's where you say, I love my job and I do it it's a gift. God has given me this gift that I get to come every day and do what I love, even though it's hard sometimes because I do so much of it. Um, it's a gift every day that God gave me when I got that phone call for this position. And I honor him by doing that. You know, I, I may not always be preaching the word, um, but God calls me at the very least, whatever I do in word or deed, I, I do unto him. Um, and I want to, I want to be great at that. And the fact that I get to do it with, at such a high level with amazing people from all over the world is, uh, is such a huge blessing. And, and I hope that, you know, I, I think that whenever I see a performance, I hear a great performance as an audience member. Um, there's a, there's an element of praise mm. in it because it's greatness. It's, it's God intended us to be great at whatever we do, whether it's recognized or not, but God intended us for greatness. 
Um, and he wants us, you know, he wants, he wants us to be as great as we can be. He, he created us to be perfect. He created us to be holy and without sin. And we kind of stepped in and had our own ideas about that. But he want, but he knows that we, he, he calls us back every time and says, I want you to be, you know, I want you to be perfect. I want you to be with me. I want you to have this. I want us to be together. I know you're never going to be perfect, but I, I do believe that, you know, that when we strive for greatness <clears throat> and strive for perfection, but never achieve it, but when there are great things and there are beautiful things, a beautiful chord, a beautiful note sung, you know, that's God created my voice. God put in my path voice teachers and coaches and family members and friends that encourage me to do what it is I love to do. And he gave, he gave me whatever talent I have. So when I go out and I use it, whether it's a soloist or a chorister, <clears throat> when people applaud, you know, that's praise to him because I hopefully followed um, the path that he put before me mm. as faithfully as I, and flaw and flawed as I try. Um, and that applause and that praise is for him because he's been faithful. So what, uh, what art form or what hobby refreshes you as the artist? What, what refreshes you? Well, I, I probably shouldn't say fantasy football. <laughs> well, we already, we, <laughs> we, that can's already, well, that worm's already out of the can. <laughs> yeah. You, um, the, so I the, won't say the that. This is great. Tenured opera singer refreshes his soul through fantasy football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, well, to to completely throw you for a loop, okay. Um, I haven't. I, it's a it's a hobby that I developed about eight years ago. Okay. Um, since I started this job three years ago, I haven't I haven't touched it. Okay. I haven't gotten back into it just because my schedule's so insane. <laughs> um, but I had about four years where I was uh, quilting a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, loop thrown was, loop thrown i yes i i uh i was in pretty deep into the quilting <laughs> scene just say i'd i'd go to a gig and i'd i'd sniff out the local quilting scene i'll walk in and you know uh retired uh you know gray-haired ladies with butch cuts <laughs> would walk up to me and say are you looking for something? You don't, are you in the right place? Yeah. Right. And so I'm a quilter. I'd pull out my phone and show them pictures of my quilts and they'd all gather around. Like they'd <laughs> found the Ark of the covenant or something. So were you, were you good? A quilter, a man quilter. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's a folk art, so <laughs> it doesn't have to be good. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I, pr I come on, don't be modest. Quilts. Come on. Just were you good or oh, not? Oh man, I was up. You would, you would, I'd knock your socks off. <laughs> Could you knit me you some socks? Believe it. You, no, I'm not a knitter. I'm oh, a quilter. Sorry. It's totally sorry. different. Right, sorry. It's totally different. Totally different. It, they're both fabric arts, but, 
Um, yeah. No, uh, I, pr- I probably made two dozen quilts. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed it because actually at the time when I started, which is yeah. in 2010, right after, it was 2011, right after our daughter was born, my wife had a job in Alaska singing uh, in La Boheme. And so I went with her and took care of our daughter while she was in rehearsals and performances. Okay. And we actually stayed with a family and the, and the mom was a quilter. Oh, and she had these amazing, mo- these all very modern quilting. Um, and I was just telling her like, these are fantastic. And she said, do you want to learn? <laughs> She's like, it's really easy. It's like, um, sure. sure. She's like, it's really good because like while the baby's sleeping, you can like sit down and do some quilting. And then when she wakes up, you can leave it. You know, it's not like something, it's not like something you're cooking where you, you know, it's time sensitive. Right. Um, and you know, I had really been thinking about, I was really interested in stained glass but it's hard to get through airport security with a bag full of broken glass and um, <laughs> rods of lead. You can imagine. I, I can. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a stretch. <laughs> so um, not to mention, you know, like you'd be over the weight limit pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to make much smaller panes of glass because it half of them would be broken by the time you got to your hotel. <laughs> um, so this was sort of like, yeah, it's similar to stained glass. You yeah. know, I'm working with, colors and the thing i love about it though is that um it's completely different than it's it's artistic right but i make uh, as opposed to opera as a soloist i'm limited in my artistic decisions by what the conductor wants by what the composer wants Mm. and what i have to do with the direct the stage director or or my colleague yeah as a singer um as a quilter um when I make something, it's permanent. When I sing, I can't even enjoy it myself because I'm doing it. Right. So I can't sit in the audience and listen and I can't really, it's not, it's not permanent. It's it. I sing and it's gone. Yeah. Right. You can make a recording, but right. Um, the, the notes but, that you just sang are going to event those sound waves are going to eventually run out. Exactly. Um, quilt like probably like a painting or a sculpture yeah is something you make you build on it and it's there forever mm. and you can only have so many quilts in your house um and when you live in one bedroom apartment that's yeah. a very small number yeah wall the wall space is limited yeah and the bed space and the bed yeah, um, storage space yeah so basically i was making quilts and giving them as gifts oh that's amazing which i really loved because it was something that i i, I sort of like the um the the poetry of making something for someone that wraps around them, you know, like right. this, oh, yeah. like literally physically is something that, that they can wrap around themselves. You know, it's like, mm. a, it's like a hug. Sorry. It's cheesy, but <laughs> like you're giving someone a hug that it took you like 95 hours to make a 95 hour hug. It's a 95 hour hug. Yeah. Well, this is getting right um, back to what you were talking about. Like it's, it's, it's slow. It's hard. It's crafted for mm-hmm. someone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and when you give somebody something, I mean, when they know what they're getting, <laughs> when, when you hand it to somebody like, Oh, that's nice. That's, yeah. that's kind of a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, that took me 65 hours by the way. Yeah. So just <laughs> so you know, 
No, but that that's the sad part is that right. things that are things that take time, things that people really put their soul into yeah. people think things that people really craft. It's, it's a, I, I, am I just sounding like kind of an old get off my lawn guy? Uh, I mean, maybe <laughs> a little bit, but I think, I think the pendulum has swung so far the other way in a lot of, in a lot of the cultural winds. It's, mm-hmm. I, I feel like, I mean, I, I, aside from, you know, hipsters were duplicitous and, <laughs> You know, yeah. hipsters liked old things because there's value in old things, but they also liked old things because people they wanted to be like were liking old things. But I think yes. deep down there was the sense of like, we're losing something here. I mean, yeah, when, when you think when you think about it, even I mean, it wasn't that long ago, like maybe 100, 120, 130 years ago. If people wanted entertainment in the evening, they either had to to write their own poems or read a poem that someone else had written or play music. Mm-hmm. They had to do sure. those things. They sure. couldn't just flip on a box or say hey alexa play this thing they had to actually they had to actually play it right and it wasn't that long ago i mean that was that's been human history for six thousand to ten thousand years or whatever where oh we want to be entertained let's tell our own stories or let's retell something that someone else has already done exactly and that's and that's why people don't write and people don't sing and people don't play anymore is because somebody can do it for you yeah when, when you learn, when you have had even to struggle through doing it poorly, oh, geez, yeah. you have a respect for someone who, and you have an understanding of what a poem is right. or what a song is right. or how to play a piano or a violin yep. that we just have no understanding of, of making things ourselves, right. a, the struggle of creation, right. yeah, the big... struggle to create something and, and you know, we just dove right into that one, but you know, that's, that's, uh, that's our reflection of our maker. You've been listening to the All Things New Podcast, a production of Summit View Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. This episode was engineered and mixed by Steve Parker and was written and produced by Trevor Sides. The music in today's episode features the man himself, Patrick Miller. You can subscribe to the All Things New Podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Learn more at summitview.com slash podcast. Oh.